We love Jesus. But we love him because he first loved us. This month, in the month of October, we've been studying doctrine. Why? Why study doctrine? One, the Bible commands us, and we'll get to that in our scripture memory verse. But two, because we love because he first loved us. We need to get to know this God who loved us, who taught us what love is. But let's go to our scripture memory verse of the month. Because the other reason we study doctrine is because we are told to study doctrine. So our scripture memory verse of the month is Titus 2.1. Let's say it together. Titus 2.1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Titus 2.1. We are seeking to understand God, to understand sound doctrine. And where we're going to go today is God's omnipotence. And so I want to show you a phrase, just a phrase out of the Baptist faith and message about God's omnipotence. So the phrase out of the Baptist uh, faith and message says, God is infinite in holiness in all other perfections. God is powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including future decisions of his free creatures. God is infinite in power. God is infinite in power. I want to tell you a story, oh, probably about, oh, almost 10 years ago now, uh, maybe even a little more than that. My parents were celebrating their 25th anniversary, and my brothers and I got this idea of giving them something for their 25th anniversary, and they both really enjoyed working in the yard. And uh, my dad, in particular, really liked having a very green, good-looking lawn. And they were in Colorado, and a green, good-looking lawn in Colorado is a lot of work because Colorado is not made for lawns. It's dry. So you end up pulling a hose all over the place. So we got this good idea of let's build dad a sprinkler system for his yard. So... We knew a guy that did landscaping, so we talked to him about uh, what parts we needed and sort of laying it out, what, what we needed to get. We went and we bought all of the supplies, and we got up early in the morning, and we started digging trenches to lay these sprinkler lines. And we dug for four hours, the four of us, and after about four hours of digging, we had about a third of the yard trenched. And we thought, oh my goodness, this is rough. Let's have lunch. So we're eating lunch. And our friend Jim pulls up in his truck, and he says, what are you guys doing? We said, well, we're having lunch. We've been working for about four hours now, and this is what we've got. And he goes, you guys finish your lunch. I'll be back in a couple minutes. And drives his truck to his shop, and about 15 minutes later, he pulls up with a little seven-horsepower trencher. And half an hour later, we were done. <laughs> Why? Because there are times when don't rely on your own strength. Your own strength just simply isn't going to cut it. It's not going to get it done. This little seven-horsepower trencher did us wonderful. But we, in our life, in our daily walk, in the day-to-day living, we need to recognize the unmeasurable, incomparable power of God, a power that's evident in creation and available to us a power that we are called to draw on, to recognize as our source of strength. You can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. To give you just a little bit of background, 
Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 48 form a section in Isaiah's uh, his text. And really, Isaiah 40 through 48 is about a coming deliverance. Now, in order to understand the coming deliverance, you sort of have to understand the situation. The nation of Israel has split into two. You've got the nation, northern nation of Israel that they still went by, and the southern nation of Judah. The northern nation of Israel has been conquered by Assyria, and Judah is living under the constant threat of the Assyrian Empire coming in and destroying them. Isaiah, though, comes on the scene, and Isaiah essentially says, well, it won't be Assyria that conquers you, but you are going to get conquered. Babylon's going to come in and conquer the nation of Judah. And that's the message that Isaiah is prophesying. Then he gets to chapters 40 through 48, and Isaiah begins to prophesy and say, however, there will come a time when you will be delivered out of the Babylonian captivity. You will be delivered back into your land. And that's what chapters 40 through 48 is all about. You probably recognize the beginning of Isaiah 40. You might not, but you probably do because there's all sorts of verses that come into things like Handel's Messiah and uh, it's very messianic. It starts off with comfort my people, comfort, comfort, comfort my people. The emphasis is on this is going to be comforting. This is about God's power and it should be comforting. Verses 3 through 5 says, prepare the way of the Lord. We know that the gospel writers use that to speak of Elijah as preparing the way of the Lord. In verses 6 through 8, the emphasis is on the temporary nature of people, at least in our physical form here on earth. We are temporary. Every one of us is destined to either go to heaven in the rapture or go to heaven when we die. It's, uh, it is the one thing that I can guarantee with 100%. Okay? It's going to happen. We are temporary, but God, he never fails. And this is the message that Isaiah has for his people. All this stuff is happening around you. Don't worry about it. Seek comfort in the omnipotent God. So we need to know what does omnipotence mean. And what we're going to see is that God's omnipotence means his power is unmeasurable. It is beyond comparison, displayed in creation, and needs to be our source of strength. So let's start in verse 12, starting right in the middle. That's okay. And we're going to read verses 12 through 17. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marks off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge? Or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. 
What Isaiah emphasizes here is that God's power is unmeasurable. We start by seeing that God's power is displayed in his personal creation. God's power is unmeasurable, and it's displayed in his personal creation. So we're going to do an experiment here. So here's what I want you to do. I want, okay, it's participation now. Take your finger and stick it out in front of you. Okay, look at something in the distance. Close one eye and close the other eye. Did you see your finger move? Okay. Don't close both eyes, sorry. Close one eye and close the other eye while opening the other eye. Okay? You see your finger bouncing back and forth? All right, that's called parallax. So parallax is actually the way we measure the distance from Earth to various far objects like stars and galaxies and things like that. Because what happens is when your point of vision changes, you can actually measure the distance based on how another object changes. Some trigonometry we won't go into there. But as the Earth moves around the sun, our point of reference changes, and we can use parallax to measure the distance. But we can only estimate how far things are away from us. We can't get it exactly. Look at what Isaiah says here in Psalm 40 in verse 12. With the breadth of his hand, God has marked off the heavens. The idea here is if you know how wide your hand is, you could measure things, right? You could use your hand as a measure. And if you think about old times before tape measures, you would actually measure things based on a cubit or the breadth of your hand. God is immeasurable. His power is beyond our comprehension. Our universe, God measures with the breadth of his hand. Now, that's not to be taken literally. That's called an anthropomorphism. It's using human language to describe something we can't comprehend. But the idea here is that God is beyond our comprehension. His power is displayed in his personal creation, a creation that he transcends. The second thing I see in verses 13 through 14 is that God's power is displayed in his unfathomable intellect talks about who can be the counselor of the Lord. Who can touch God's intellect? Have you ever thought about the fact that God knows everything? Now, here's how most of us think when we think God knows everything. Most of us think, yep, everything that has to do with my spiritual life, God knows. And that's true. That's true. That's our default mode. But I want you to think about the thing that you're an expert in you know God knows more about that than you do. The problems that you need to solve tomorrow at work, God knows the solution already. When, when I was uh, working on my dissertation back when we were in Colorado, I had a weird situation where my thesis advisor, the person that I was working with, he went on sabbatical and moved away, like literally moved. He was gone. And in math, especially in number theory, it's a very, very small community of people that, that have studied something. And so there were literally like maybe a half dozen people in the country that understood the problem I was trying to solve. And the only one that I knew had just moved away. I was like, great, this will be fun. And 
I remember like for weeks on end, I was like, I don't, I'm not gonna be able to do this. I can't do this. I have nobody to talk to about this. And I was laying in bed one night and it struck me. And it's really obvious. So you're gonna think, well, obvious, duh. But it struck me. God already knows how to solve this problem. And so I sat there and I talked to God about my problem and the technique I wanted to use and whether it would work out or not. And the next night, I laid and I talked to God about it. And day in and day out, I just started talking to God like he was my thesis advisor. And lo and behold, I was able to solve the problem. God already knew the answer. Yes, God is our spiritual guide, and I don't want to minimize that. But I think in life, we go through pretending like all God knows is about our spirit. God knows so much more than that. God's intellect is unfathomable. Tell him every problem that you're dealing with. He knows the answer. He knows why your car won't start. He knows why your washer won't run. God knows the details of our life. Look at verses 15 through 17. Verses 15 through 17 tell us that God's power is displayed in his dominance over the nations. It says, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. It talks about them being as fine dust. They are regarded as dust on the scales. The word there for dust is like the fine dust that settles when something hasn't been dusted for a while. That thin layer. If you had a set of scales, you really wouldn't care to dust them off. You know, maybe your bathroom scale has some dust on it, and that might be the key. Next time you get on it, realize maybe that dust is what weighs so much. (laughs) The nations are like the dust. God goes on through Isaiah, and he talks about Lebanon. The forests of Lebanon aren't good enough to offer sacrifices to God. Lebanon was north of Israel. It was known for its grand and great trees. Think of like the giant sequoias, you know, big trees. And Isaiah says, those aren't good enough for God because his power is beyond comprehension. In verse 18, we read that nothing is comparable to God. So let's move on to 18 through 24. I'm sorry, I need to give you an action step here. Let me give you an action step before I move on. This was my personal action step. What conversations do you need to have with the all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe? That was what struck me as I remembered my thesis in talking with God. I talk to God a lot, but how much do I talk to him about things that are of my life, of value? Yes, my spiritual stuff is important, but there's other aspects of my life. Take those to God. All right, I want to move on to verses 18 through 24. So let me read. It says, With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was formed? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. 
He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the ruler of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. God's power is beyond comparison. God's power is beyond comparison. God, through Isaiah, begins in verses 18 through 20 by reminding people that no idol could possibly bear God's power. Actually, Isaiah's being ironic in what he says. He says, idols are made by humans. Remember earlier, he had just said humans are temporary. Idols are are made by humans. So that in and of itself makes them insignificant. They're fashioned to look good, but they have no inherent good in them. The value of an idol is completely dependent on the wealth of the one who calls for it to be fashioned. The value of an idol is completely dependent on the value of goods that went into it. In fact, Isaiah says, it's kind of hard to get an idol to stand up on its own. That's part of the craftsmanship of making an idol, is making one that can hold itself up. Then Isaiah just sort of lets that hang. He doesn't even take the time to say, and think about God. He doesn't even take the time to say that. Because what Isaiah has argued is he said, idolatry is foolish. No idol can compare to God. Here's what an idol is. It's an object formed by a craftsman that has no inherent value, and if the craftsman's not good, it doesn't even stand up on its own. Then he moves on. And what we see is that he says that no creation, in fact, could compare to God. We see that in verses 21 through 22. Don't you know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Don't you understand that since the earth was formed, God sits above it? No creation can possibly compare to God's power. Isaiah describes God as sitting above the circle of the earth, maybe a reference to the horizon. And what Isaiah is saying is, as far as the eye can see, look, go stand on the biggest hill that you can find and look over the horizon. As far as you can see, that's God's creation. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out for us to live in. In verses 22 through 24, Isaiah continues by emphasizing that no human ruler can withstand God's power. No human ruler. We're entering a a season of political commercials. I guess we're not entering it. We are in it. Okay. No human ruler can withstand God's power. I want to remind you that as we go into this season. God is in control. What does that mean for us, by the way? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, my advice is figure out how much time you've spent watching the news and political commercials. Turn it off and try to pray for that amount of time for our country. Okay? There are prayer guides on the information counter if you need something like that. 
But I'm serious. No human ruler can withstand God. Let's pray about it. Spend the time in prayer. So let me give you an action step. Ask yourself, where do I need to be careful in comparing God to anything else? Where do you need to be careful? It's so easy for us to compare God implicitly or even explicitly. I think we often do it implicitly. No, turn it over to God. Let's read on. Verses 25 through 26. Verse 25 says, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. God's power is displayed in creation. If you have any doubt, go look. Romans 1.20 reminds us that all of creation declares God. And when you can't see anything with which to compare God to, you're forced to recognize God's power. Verse 25 reminds us, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Verse 26 is cool. It actually gives us an action step in and of itself. And we'll get to that at the end. It says, look at the heavens and see God's glory. So, I did just a, a hair of research here because I, I think this is interesting. Within our galaxy, our local galaxy, the Milky Way, astronomers estimate that there are 100 billion stars. Okay? So that's just in, in our local region, 100 billion stars. Astronomers further estimate, based on some of the telescopes that they're using, that there are 10 billion galaxies in the universe. Okay, so 100 billion locally, you know, you have 100 billion neighbors, and there's another 10 billion cities. That, that would be the idea here, okay? So um, I couldn't help myself. I, I did the calculation. That's 10 to the 22nd stars in the universe. And some of you are going to ask me, well, what is the name of that number? <laughs> 10 sextillion. Okay, that's a 10 with 22 zeros after it. Stars in the universe, okay? So then I got to thinking, because the verse says here, he calls them forth by name, okay? So, so here's the calculation I did. If I were to call them forth by name and I were to be able to name one per second, how long would it take me to do that? 100 trillion years. That's the size of God's creation. So let me give you your action step. This is one you can do tonight if the sky cooperates with us. I want you to go out tonight. Take a moment. Look into the sky and take some time to praise God for his creation. The omnipotent God of the universe made that. 
Let's take some time to praise him for what he has done. I love the ending of Isaiah 40. Let's read verses 27 through 31. Isaiah says, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God's power should be your source of strength. We have a tendency, mankind has a tendency to complain against God. And right here in verse 27, Isaiah asks, why do you complain, Jacob? Why are you complaining, Israelites? Now, let me tell you why the Israelites had reason to complain. They did, at least in our minds, we would think so. The Assyrian military might is rolling just outside of town. And the Assyrians were not nice people. So um, I found some Assyrian art, and I, I have a, a quote here to describe Assyrian art. Assyrian art contains some of the most appalling images ever created. In one scene, tongues are being ripped from the mouths of prisoners that will mute their screams. In the next stage of torture, they're flailed alive. In another picture, a surrendering general is about to be beheaded, and a third prisoner is being ground and watching his father's bones be ground before he's executed in the streets of Nineveh. That's the artistry that we have coming out of the city of Nineveh, the Assyrian capital. Those people are standing right outside Israel, threatening to march in. But God responds, why do you complain? Why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord? You see, we have a tendency to complain against God. But our complaining against God actually reveals our immaturity, our spiritual immaturity. Spiritual maturity is multidimensional. It involves knowledge, understanding, trust, faithfulness, Christ-likeness, lots of different dimensions to it. But Isaiah says, do you not know? Do you lack knowledge? Don't you know who the God of the universe is? That he's on your side. That whatever happens to you is temporary. Don't you understand that? Don't you trust God? We need to know that God is everlasting. His characteristics, his love, his care, and his promises are everlasting. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow tired. He understands our situation. And if he's chosen to put us here in this moment, in this time, it's in his understanding that he has done so. In verse 29, he reminds us that he actually makes his power available to the weak. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, talking to God about the thorn in the flesh, 
hears back. My, my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is available. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. In our weakness, God's omnipotence shines. In fact, in 30 through 31, we see that those who turn to God find the strength in his power. Even the youths grow tired and weary. If you spend much time with a child, you realize this, but in the moment of their energy, you wish for this, maybe. Even youth grow tired. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. We have an eagle in our neighborhood, a bald eagle in our neighborhood, and it is beautiful to watch an eagle soar. Just the calm, the speed, and the power. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What's the key to this power? How do we take possession, or rather draw on, God's omnipotence? The answer is right there in the text. It's really easy. Determine right here and right now to place your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in an election in a few days or a week and a half. Okay? You should, you should vote and you should research and you should understand what you're voting for, but don't put your hope there. That's not where our hope is at. Don't put your hope in your bank account. Tomorrow, that money might not be worth anything. Don't put your hope in your possessions. Last week, we had a fire raging south of us. Possessions can go like that. Put your hope in the God of the universe who promises to renew your strength when your hope is in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your omnipotence. A power that is truly beyond our comprehension. Yes, we can look to the stars and see the vastness of your creation. We can study to see the vastness of your knowledge. But that's just a drop in the bucket of who you are. And more than that, Lord, you promise us that if we place our hope in you, you will renew our strength. Lord, I pray that today we would determine to put our hope in you. We would recognize the futility of trusting in worldly leaders, financial savings, physical possessions, our own intellect, or any other object. You are the omnipotent God, the all-powerful creator. Help us to renew our strength in you. In Jesus' name, amen.